Galatians chapter number three tonight. Good to see you this evening. Galatians chapter number three. Galatians chapter number three tonight. Let's begin in verse number 13, and we'll read down to verse number 17. It says, Now Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. In this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should, be make, should make the promise of none effect. Take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number 10. Hebrews chapter number 10. Or excuse me, chapter number 6, my bad. Hebrews chapter number 6. Let's look at verse 16. It says here, For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, that means unchangeable, in which it was impossible for God to lie, which might have, which we might have a strong consolation, who have fled to, for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Titus chapter number 1. Titus chapter number 1. Don't have to go far for Titus. Go back the other way. I was going the wrong way. Titus chapter number 1. In verse number 1. Paul, a servant of God and of the, an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promise before the world began, but hath in these, hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of, our, of God our Savior. Now I'll go, if you will, one more time to back to Galatians and let us notice chapter number 5. Galatians chapter number 5. And let us begin in verse number 13. 
For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law was fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Everett Storms was a school teacher from Ontario, Canada. He was reading one day in a book that he had picked up, and it mentioned in that book a very unusual statistic. It said that there are over 30,000 promises in the Bible. Well, Everett kind of scratched his head a little bit, and he thought to himself, I think from the last time I've looked at some research and understood, he understood there was about 31,000 verses uh, uh, give or take a few, you might say, in the Bible. So he started to start to think it to himself. Seems like an awful lot of promises, uh, 30,000 and 31,000 verses. And so on his, after his 27th reading of the Bible, he set out to record them. Every promise in the book. And he did so meticulously. And he came up that there was over 8,810 promises in God's Word. 8,810 promises in God's Word. You say, I don't believe it. Well, when you read the Bible and you go through and you find all your promises, you can you know, compare notes with Everett and uh, maybe you'll find out a different number. But he found this number too, which I thought was very interesting. Out of the 8,810 promises, 7,487 of them, that's about oh, 90. 5%, give or take a percent or two there, of the verses that you find in the scriptures are verses that are related, that are promises from God to man. 7,487 of the verses out of the 8,810 are promises that are related from God to man. I don't want to preach about 7,487 promises tonight, okay? But I would like to preach to you about two, just two. I want to see two promises tonight that we find here in our text, especially chapter number 3 of Galatians. So if you have your Bibles, then turn back over there if you will. Last week we spoke to the covenant that God established with Israel. We called that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. We called it the Law of Moses. He established, then we also talked about that God established a new covenant, or was going to, and he gave that promise in Jeremiah chapter number 31. Jeremiah chapter number 31, a New Testament, a new covenant was going to come on the scene. And that covenant was fulfilled in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, upon his death upon the cross and his resurrection. And ultimately was fulfilled whenever God sent his Holy Spirit down and filled that company of believers there in the upper room in Acts chapter number 2. But God also made a promise that would coincide with this teaching tonight. A promise so strong that it cannot be broken. A promise so strong uh, that if, uh, if it were to said to be broken, it would be said that God is a liar. And as I read to you in Titus 1 in verse number 2, uh, God is no liar. Uh, let every man be a liar. Amen. 
Uh, Let all men be liars, but God is no liar. God is truth. And those two promises that we find here in the book of Galatians and other places in our scripture tonight, they come together for us. And one wonderful thing is this, is the promise of the Messiah the promise and the promise of everlasting life. Those two are so intimately connected, we'll see here this evening. Galatians was written for a number of reasons, but for its main purpose is this. Is that the Jews and the people that were saved there in Galatia, those believers were being challenged in their faith. Paul and other ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ had gone to Galatia to preach the gospel. And they had seen many souls saved. Many people and churches started. We don't know exactly how many churches in Galatia, but there were many. Several churches that had started there, and there was elders that were ordained, and there were pastors and teachers. And, and Paul tells them many times that these men labor night and day to preach the gospel to them, to teach them the word of God, to teach them the things of God, to tell them and make sure they got it right. But soon after their departure, what happened? Godless, wicked men came in and began to teach some other things. They began to teach some things that were not in line with Christ nor the teachings of the apostles. They began to convince them and to teach them and to try to get them to go back to the old ways. In fact, it had gotten so bad that they had tried to make them subscribe back to the old Decalogue. And you've got to go back and get circumcised. And you've got to do this. And you've got to follow Moses' law in order to be saved and stay saved. And Paul is writing to these believers. He says in Galatians chapter number 3 and verse number 1, look what he says. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath what? Bewitched you. Now that's a pretty, that's a, who's, who's put the witchcraft on you? Who's put the spell on you, he's saying. Uh, who has uh, deceived you? He's telling them that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath evidently been set forth, crucified among you. This only what I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that minister to you in the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him to righteousness. So he's preaching to them, and he's trying to encourage them. They try to uh, let them see that they don't need to be convinced to go back to their old ways, or don't need to convince to go back to these uh, false teachers that were trying to get them to believe that Jesus was not enough. You know, that's really the problem with a lot of the cults and a lot of and all the false teaching and preaching that's out there. It always really boils down to this, is that Jesus is not enough. And that's really, when you, when you get involved with, with any religion that's out there, it really is that one thing. Jesus is not enough. You've got to take this cup, and you've got to eat this bread, and you've got to do this work, and you've got to say this prayer, and you've, you've got to live this way, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that. And if you follow all, if you cross all the T's and dot all the I's just right, then you might make it. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what they say. They say you might make it. Nobody's for sure on that thing. Nobody's 100%. In fact, I've told people I'm 100% for sure that I'm going to heaven. They said, you're arrogant. 
you're proud. I say, no, I'm not arrogant or proud except in this. I say, I say, I'm proud in this. I boast in Jesus Christ, my Lord. I'm proud in Jesus. I'm proud. In, he said, that sounds really weird and very odd. But what does he say? I make my boast in the Lord. Uh, I, I put all my confidence in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so Paul is teaching them, and he's trying to get them, dissuade them away from these false teachers. And today we still have such preaching in churches, as I said. Preaching that puts the emphasis on works. Preaching that puts on the emphasis on certain ways of living. Preaching that undermines the work of Jesus Christ. And as I was talking to Doug, and he kind of spurred some thinking too with this, sometimes puts sanctification before justification, putting the cart before the horse. Saying you've got to do these things first before you can get saved. That places the emphasis on the works instead of the one that's already done the work. Amen. And Paul in his epistles never shies away. Listen to me now. Paul in his epistles never shies away from godly living. Amen. Read the last three chapters of Ephesians. Read the, read the last two chapters of Galatians. Read the last two chapters of Philippians. Read the last uh, six chapters of Romans. Read your Bibles. Read your epistles. And you'll find that God, that Paul does never shy away from godly living. Read 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Read 1 and 2 Peter. Your apostles never shy away from that. Read your Beatitudes. Read, read I should say, read your Sermon on the Mount. You'll find that he ne- the, 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 the Gospels, the Word of God, never shies away from godly living. I'm not trying to say that, and I'll point that out here in just a little bit. But the point that we're making tonight, and in these epistles, especially this, that our justification, nor our sanctification, can take place by our own will. <laughs> we cannot will these things into existence. We cannot just simply say, well, I'm saved because I'm saved. Or I'm going to get sanctified because I want to get saved. We cannot do this on our own. We must have the help of Christ. It must be Jesus Christ our Lord. Look what he says in verse number 16 again. He says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He has said, not to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is Christ. Look at verse 29. And if ye be Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We must have a steady reliance and dependence upon the promises of God. Number one, notice an earthly illustration. He says here in verse number 15, he says, well, let me just illustrate it like this. He says, you've got two men. Uh, they are going to buy a house, a piece of land. Maybe they're going to uh, sell a car or whatever they're going to do. I know they weren't. Maybe they were going to sell a chariot back in those days. I don't know what they were doing, buying and selling livestock. I don't know what was going on. But uh, they were going to uh, write up a contract. Look what he says in 15. He says, brethren, I speak after the manner of men. What does that mean? Whenever you see that, what is he saying? He's saying that, uh, he's saying, I'm talking on layman's terms here. I'm talking just uh, business terms. I'm, not, I'm, I'm trying to give you an illustration here. Something that happens in everyday, according, everyday, everyday life. He says, Though it be a, but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. He said, 
He says, now, he says, if it's just a man's covenant, just a, just a person-to-person contract, let's say, uh, you know, Nikosha and I, we're going we're gonna, to uh, settle on buying a, a piece of property. She owns, you know, 20 acres out in the hill country, and she's going to agree to sell it to me for a dollar an acre, okay? All right? And, uh, and so, uh, and, and after it's all said and done, and after it's been appraised, and all the things that have gone through, and it's gone through all the proper authorities, okay? And then finally it comes down to signing day and the, the notary is there and the title company's there and everybody's there and, and everybody's there signing those papers. Has anybody ever bought a house and you know and you got to sign about five million papers and everything? Uh, it seems like. And, she, and we're there signing papers and everything and it's all said and done and the stamp is sealed and it's sealed up. It's all good. I sign my last uh, signature. She signs her last signature. It's done. It's over with. Now when that's all said and done, there's nothing that she can do about it. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't add to it. I can't take away from it. This contract is over with. The contract is done. The deal is done. All right? And that's what he's saying right here. Hey, Paul's point is simple. He says that if a, if a contract between people on earth would hold up in court, if it, if it would be legally binding and unbreakable, then how much more unbreakable is the covenant that God has made with mankind. How much more, how much more, think about that, how much more unbreakable is God's covenant with us? Think about, just think about this for a couple of things. These are just a couple of things that ran across my mind. Is that in this world, you could have, number one, you could have a corrupt judge. Right? Uh, you could have somebody, there could have been a typo. Right? Uh, there could have been a misunderstanding of the law. There might have been some wording in the document that was made to be appear one way, and really, in reality, it was really saying another thing. We see this a lot of times happening on, uh, whenever you have voting, don't you? Uh, they have it written in such a way that, uh, that whatever party is in charge, they try to write it in such a way that you'll answer uh, for them, right? Uh, you know, sometimes you'll see those signs out there that says, uh, check yes. Uh, for this, all right, check yes for this, because they want you to know that that's the right answer, even though it seems like no might be the right answer. So that's what happens in our world, but if God gives a promise, there can be no doubt what he says is true, because I already read to you, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie. So this is based upon a couple of things, obviously. Number one, it's a belief in God. Now, if you don't believe in God tonight, we're not on the same page here, okay? I mean, we need to be going somewhere else besides Galatians chapter number 3, okay? We need to be going over to Genesis. We need to be looking at some other things in the book of Psalms. We need to be seeing some other things. So the whole premise of what I'm trying to preach to you tonight is based upon a couple of things. Number one, you believe in God. And number two, you believe that God makes no mistakes, God makes no mistakes. Upon those two premises, you are hanging your hat upon and you're saying, yes, I believe there's a God. And yes, I believe God does everything always right and never lies. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie. I don't have that hope in mankind, okay? I don't believe every person out there. Not every person is, that's talking to me is telling me the truth. Not every person out there is always going to be right. 
If that's the truth about mankind, they're not always right, and they don't always tell the truth, but yet in a court of law, that contract will hold up? How much more should the covenant that God has made with us, the promise that God has given to us of his son, Jesus Christ, should we believe? Should we hold fast to? Number two, let us notice the promise that God gives to Abraham. It says in Genesis, or excuse me, it says here in Galatians 3, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter number 12. Genesis chapter number 12. Just go ahead and turn to Genesis real quickly because I, I want to see a couple of things here in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. He says here, he says, I will, or Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 3. I'm going to go ahead and start reading. If you aren't there yet, just keep turning because we're going to get to some other passages in Genesis. You'll be there soon enough. He says in Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 3, he says, And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Verse number 7 of Genesis 12. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. You see that? Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Genesis chapter number 13 and verse number 15. God talking to Abram again says, For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it thee and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth so that a man cannot number the dust of the earth. Then shall thy seed also be numbered. Rise, walk through the land, the length of it, the breadth of it, for I will give it to thee. Genesis chapter number 15. Verse number 5, and he brought him forth abroad, and he says, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Genesis chapter number 17, verse number 7. He says again, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, and their generations for an everlasting covenant be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. Genesis chapter number 22, Genesis chapter 22 and verse number 17. I'm skipping over several of these. We could look at many more. I think you're starting to get the point. But he says in Genesis chapter 7, Genesis 22 verse 17, that in blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee, thy, multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter number 26. Who's this talking to? Well, we've switched characters here, and we've gone over here to Isaac. It says in Genesis chapter 26, and he says in verse number 3, he says, Sojourn in the land, and I will bless thee. And for unto thee and to thy seed will I give all of these countries, and I'll perform the oath which I swear unto thy father, unto thy Abraham thy father, and I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of the heaven. Go over to Genesis chapter number 28 in verse number 13. Here he establishes it with Jacob. And he says, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, God of Abraham thy father, the God of Isaac, the land wherein thy liest. To thee will I give it and to thy seed, and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and the south. And in, thee, and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So God makes a promise to these three men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He says that. He says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he notes here that 
there is something that's happening here. Does this mean that Abraham will have a physical representation of from every person in the whole entire world, every family? That's not possible, and that's not the case. Every family, I don't think every family is going to log into Ancestry.com tonight and find your roots back to Abraham, okay? Notice the grammar, though. And it's very specific here. He saith not to, and not to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed. Now, preacher, I'm not that great on grammar, but I can even understand that whenever he says seed, singular, he can mean a whole lot of seeds. He even says, I'll multiply thy seed as much as the stars of the heaven. But notice here with me that this promise is singled out that this one seed, this one seed was going to bless the whole earth. How is, did, did all of Israel bless the whole entire earth? Many times they did not. Many times they were in bondage. Many times they were in sin. Are they blessing the earth now? How is he going to single out a multitude of people? Well, think about this. The promise transfers to who? Isaac. Isaac goes to Jacob. What does Jacob do in Genesis chapter number 49 and verse number 10? He narrows it down to a tribe, Judah. In Genesis 49, he narrows it down to a lawgiver, Judah. Then you go throughout the Old Testament and you see that seed begin to narrow and narrow. Through Old Testament prophecies, that seed begins to narrow until finally you get to David. And not only are you talking about the tribe of Judah, but now you're talking about a family, the family of David. It's getting smaller. How is he going to bless the whole earth through his seed? And then read your Psalms and read your prophets and read the rest of it, and you'll find out that it not only narrows down to Isaac, to Jacob, to to the tribe of Judah, to David, but then it narrows down to somebody that's born in Bethlehem. And then it narrows down to somebody that's born of a virgin. And then it narrows down to somebody that rides in upon a rides upon a donkey, uh, and it rides and all the other Old Testament prophecies that goes along with it. Then it narrows down all the way to one that was whose side was pierced and hands were pierced. Who is this seed he's talking about here? It is none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is who. That is the only person that has been able to bless all the families of the whole entire of the whole entire world. It is this one man, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And for anybody to believe or to think or to somehow conjure up into their mind that somehow that Jesus is not enough goes directly against the promise of God, who said it's His seed that will bless the families of the earth. It's only Him. Nothing else. No one else. He's the only one. What does the Bible say in the book of Revelation? He said there will be a representative from what? Every tribe, every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every nation. There will be a representative there. By why? Why? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, whose their saints have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's Christ. It all points to Him. 
And Paul says that very statement, into thy seed, which is Christ. Even Moses, the great lawgiver, the friend of God, the man of God, the, the, the one that saw the glory of God, said this about the Lord, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I should command him. And what did Jesus say? I do all things that please the Father. And he did. This is God's word. This is God's promise. That God would send a Messiah, a chosen one, an anointed one, into the world. And how did he do that? Well, that's where I read to you verse number 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. And that is written, Accursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So that's promise number one. God would send a Savior. The second promise is followed up for us with verse number 29. And he says, and if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's why I had you turned over to the book of Hebrews just a second ago. Because it's there in Hebrews chapter number 6 that he talks about us being heirs to the promise. He goes on to make this comparison between law and promise and and he begins to talk about this heirship that we have in Jesus Christ and he picks that we pick this up again in Hebrews chapter number 6 and verse number 16 where the Bible lets us know that that God he uses a similar illustration here for men verily swear by a greater an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife again kind of the same thing here Talking about the same illustration almost. We have a contract between two people. And he says once the contract is made, there's no more strife. No more dickering back and forth. Nobody's saying, well, this is mine and this is mine. No, it's settled. It's done. It's over. And the thing that's been settled is this. Christ is our Savior. And Christ will give eternal life to all that will believe. What does he say? He tells them there. He says in John chapter number 3. In verse number 14, Brother Y'all's preached upon this uh, on one of the services there on Sunday morning, I believe it was, when Nicodemus was talking to him. And he says that if, I, if the Son of Man be lifted up, he says, I will draw all men unto myself. He says, what does he tell them then? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. But have eternal life. He goes on to make this promise and makes this comparison. He tells them in verse number 17, he says, Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things. What two immutable things? What is he talking about there? What are the two immutable things? His promise and his oath. His his counsel and his oath. What does the word counsel mean? The word counsel means promise. It means, excuse me, it means um, his purposes, his will. God's will. God's purposes. Well, somebody might scratch their head and say, well, I know God's purposes are unchangeable. I get that. I mean, if God purposes to do something, I mean, he's going to do it, right? But look what the scriptures teach us here. He says here in verse number, verse number 17, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise. 
God was not just saying, this is my purpose, this is it, it's it's ordained. No, he says, but I want to show you to the nth degree that I'm going to save you to the uttermost by Jesus Christ our Lord by telling you and by making a promise with Father Abraham, if you will, that there is the immutability of his counsel and he confirmed it by an oath. That he said, I purpose it. And I've given an oath to him that he will be blessed by all, all nations will be blessed by him. That all will believe will have eternal life. Jesus proves this point in Mark chapter number 12 and verse number 26 whenever it says, And as touching the dead, he's talking to these uh, Sadducees that don't believe in the resurrection here. And in Mark chapter number 12 and verse number 26, he's rebuking them for believing these crazy things about this one woman who dies, or excuse me, this one woman that has seven husbands and they're all dying and everything. And he explains to them uh, that that's not going to happen in eternal life and everything like that. And he says, but, and by the way, let me just also inform you about something too. He tells them in verse number 26, and as touching the dead, they, that, that they rise... Have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto them, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Indicating what? That these men were still alive and with God. I am. Not I was. But I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He says he's, he, they're with God right now. That's where they're at. They're Abiding with God in eternity. He confirms this eternal life. He says, I'll give you my son, but not just my son, but all that will believe upon him will have eternal life. They will have two immutable things, his counsel and his oath. And then he compares this promise. He says in verse number 18, he says that these, in these two things in which it was impossible for God to lie, I don't know if you write in your Bibles, but man, that would be a good place for you to underline right there. It, is impo- it was impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation, a strong hope, a strong comfort. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set for us. Which hope we have as an anchor for the soul. We just sang that song tonight. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Anchor to the what? Rock which shall not move. You see, that's what we're, mess- we're, we're anchored to him. You say, what does this mean? Well, it's a, I think there's actually about four different ways to understand this. Number one, it's like a boat going into the harbor. Jesus is our forerunner. Jesus is the one that's gone in before us. He's the little boat, if you will. And the church is the big boat. He's taken the anchor in. He's set it in the harbor. And he's going to safely pull in all of those that have believed upon him one day into the harbor, which is heaven. It's also the picture of a, uh, of a person that is running a race and handing off a baton. Jesus Christ is the first one. That He is the first one. He is the forerunner. He has run the race. He has finished his course. And he's handed the baton off to his church, to his believers. And he says, finish the course. And I'll meet you, on the other, I'll meet you at the finish line. I'll be here waiting for you. There's another illustration that goes along with this. Also, it is the idea of a city of refuge. 
that Jesus Christ has run into the city of refuge, that we have, excuse me, that we ourselves have been placed into the city of refuge, waiting one day to meet our God, to meet our King, to meet our Lord. We're safe there. And then another illustration, which I believe is what he is referring to here at the end, when he says that, whether the forerunner is entered in for us, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, is that Jesus Christ, our high priest, has entered into a temple not made with hands that is holy in the heavens. And he's taken his own blood and he's offered it unto God for those that will believe upon him. He has already gone into the temple, my friend. He is not, he didn't go into an earthly temple. He didn't go into the temple at Jerusalem, into the high place. Why, could, why didn't he go in there? He would have broke the law. He wasn't, a, he wasn't a Levite. But he went to somewhere greater. He went to somewhere better. He went to a temple not made with hands, holy in the heavens. And he brought his own blood and he offered it unto God. And it was a sufficient sacrifice for my sin and for your sin, my friend. It's sufficient until the, it's a sufficient for eternal life. I like what Brother Y'all said. I really appreciated that comment when he said that sometimes we say we're saved. And we mean, are you born again? Have you been saved? Have you trusted Christ as Savior? But when the Bible says that we're saved, it means we're saved from beginning to end. It's not just a one-time thing. It's not just in the moment, in the present. Uh, have I been good today? Have I, have I not messed up too bad? Or, uh, I mean, how many of us, let's not show a raise of hands in here today, but how many of us have ever struggled in your Christian walk in life when you really royally, royally messed things up, okay? I mean, you have flushed it down the toilet, and you just feel like my life is a royal mess, and I'm never going to heaven. I'm no good for God. I'm not saved. How could somebody be saved and live the way I do? How could somebody do the things that I do? And be, How could somebody say the things that I say and be a Christian? I mean, come on. I mean, but understand, my friend, is that you've been saved to the uttermost. And it didn't depend upon you in the first place. And my friend, once you're saved, born again, been, been bought by the blood of the Lamb, and you've got the Holy Spirit of God indwelling inside of you, my friend, then understand this, that the Bible says that God has confirmed it by two immutable things, that by His purpose and by His oath that He confirmed in Abraham, that all that will believe upon Him, they will count it for righteousness' sake. Not your righteousness, but God's righteousness. Upon your life. You're saved. Eternal. Everlasting. Galatians chapter number 5. If we know this then. He tells us. As I already read to you. That they might receive the spirit. uh, That they might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. We see the promise applied. For he says in Galatians chapter number 5 and verse number 13, he says, For brethren, you have not been called into liberty, only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. If we know that we have eternal life waiting for us, it should give us greater assurance to live as believers in the time that we have now to live. If we know, we believe, we see, there's an eternal life waiting. 
a glorious life waiting. It should give us an assurance to believe that we can live for him and should be living for him now. It should encourage us, as he says in verse number 13, to love one another. That we should be in the spirit loving each other. Amen? We should love you. You should love your, your husband. You should love your spouse. You should love your wife. You should love your children. Say, so why are you telling us to love our kids? Because sometimes we need to be told to love our kids. Amen? We need to love our children. We need to love our parents. That's a good place to say amen right there, okay? All right? You ought to love your parents. You ought to love your grandparents. You ought to, you ought to love your neighbor. You ought to love people. Love one another. The promise applied. Hey, praise God for eternal life. Amen. I'm going there one day. But my friend, eternal is not just in the eternal. Eternal starts now. Okay? You should be living for Jesus now. Oh, one day I'm going to sing up in heaven. One day I'm going to give him praise. One day I'm, going to, I'm just going to sing the glory of God. Well, why don't you sing the glory to God right now? Why don't you love people now? Well, I'm not perfect. No, I'm not either. Okay? None of us are perfect. But we're taught to be working on it. Amen? That's called sanctification. That's called God working in our hearts and our life to love one another. We ought to love the church. We ought to love each other in here. So I don't get along with so-and-so. Or I, 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 don't, I don't really particularly care for so-and-so. Or I, I don't really, I, I don't really, uh, I don't really find. Hey, listen, I'm not asking you to be the best buds or, or, to, or to DM them on Facebook or, or wherever you do. I'm not asking them to follow them on Instagram. I'm not asking you to do anything with them. I'm not asking you to go over to their house and have chili dogs or anything after church tonight. I'm just saying, love some people, amen? Love folks. And show that you love them. He says in verse number 14, he says, For all the law was fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one another. I love that verse right there. That is the most graphic verse in the Bible, I think. I preached a message one time called Christian Cannibals. That's what that verse is right there. Christian cannibals. It's sad. We, and we got, we've, we've got a lot of that in the church today. And churches, I should say. I should make that more plural. We have, we have a lot of that in churches today. People debiting and devouring one another. Fighting and bickering and carrying on. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, folks, but with principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. Listen, I'm not saying if there's not a, I'm not saying if there's, you know, no sin or if there's sin in somebody's life or somebody's doing something ungodly or heinous. You know, I mean, if somebody comes to me or I find out that somebody in this church was you know, sexually abusing their children or something like that, you better believe I'm going to be the first one to the authorities. I'm going to be the first one. I'm going to be the first one to say, you know what, that's wrong, that's wicked, that's ungodly, we don't put up with none of that nonsense around here. But at the same time, 
there are things in people's lives that are more preferences, more things in people's life that, well, it's just, I don't like what they like. I don't do it the way they do it. Well, they offended me. And that's probably going to happen. You stick around Scenic Hills Baptist Church long enough, you're probably going to be offended by somebody, if not offended by me, okay? So let us learn to not bite and bicker and devour one another. That's the promise applied. We got to live as eternal life right now. And then he says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It encourages us to walk in God's spirit because what did I read to you just a moment ago in Galatians 3.14? He says that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. There's another promise right there. The promise of the spirit of God dwelling in us, working in our hearts, teaching us what eternal life is going to look like one day. It's going to be love. It's not going to be fighting and bickering. We're going to be walking in the spirit, not in the lust of the flesh. Let's go ahead and get some practice on that right now. Let's go ahead and get some practice. You say, what is the lust of the flesh? Well, go ahead and read, if you will, verses 19, 20, and 21, and you'll find out what the lust of the flesh is. Okay? I don't trust you'll read it. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, and revelings. That means partyings. That's the, that's the work of the flesh. He says, stay away from that. You don't live like that no more. People that live this way are, well, they're not going to be ones that are inheriting the kingdom of God. That's not the way that people that inherit the kingdom of God don't act like this. They don't live like this. That's not their lifestyle. But rather, we should be having the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, temperance. We ought to be having these in our life and letting these be coming out in our life. And he says, he says, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. So we see tonight these wonderful, precious truths. There are 7,847 of them in the word of God. I've only given to you two of them. Christ, eternal life. I might have given you three, the promise of the Spirit of God. Those three, those three, the promises of God, the promises of God. Let me ask you a question. Have you relied upon the only one that you should be relying upon? Jesus Christ our Lord? Is Jesus enough? Is he enough? All the cults, all the religions say he's not enough. He's 99%. He's like that bacteria, like those uh, hand-washing soaps, right? 99.99%, you know? He's just not quite there. I'll tell you what, my friend, with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's 100%. It's all or nothing. All or nothing. Do you have Christ as Savior? Have you believed upon him as Lord and Savior? If you have, then you have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For God cannot lie. Father, we're thankful for...